0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor Jim McLarty.
1: Number 2
2: Turn to Ephesians 4. We will get there eventually. I am going to start this morning with a 2,000 year old argument. This is not unique to me. As you go back and you read your Bible and you look at the lives of the original apostles we can see them all go through a change. There is some transitional moment in their lives. When we are defending Christianity, when we're defending the veracity of the Bible, including when we're defending the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one of the best ways to do that is to take a look at the original witnesses. The original witnesses... If they are not verifiable, if they are not trustworthy, if they are not credible, then the Bible has no credibility. But the more credibility, the more veracity that the original witnesses have, the more confidence we can have that the Bible is full of the words of verifiable eyewitnesses to the most remarkable event in human history the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. But they didn't just witness it and then testify to it. They witnessed it, and it changed them. When you read about the life of Peter, let's say, he's always Mr. Sandal-in-Mouth. Every time you read something about Peter, he's saying the wrong stuff. He's the one that is corrected by Jesus more so than... All the rest. And so he goes from somebody who's really interested in saving his own skin. He's really worried about himself more than he's worried about anybody else. We know that by the fact that three times he denies that he even knows Jesus. Swears up and down. I don't know him. I wasn't with him just to save his own skin. And yet on the day of Pentecost, who is it? that stands up in front of the Jews and says, you with wicked hands killed the prince of life. Where did he get that kind of boldness? Where did he get that kind of confidence that what he believed was absolutely true? Well, he went through a transition. Something happened. He actually saw the events that he writes about. Not only the death, not only the burial, but also the resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ was enough to change him. When you think about Thomas, to this very day, he still has the nickname Doubting Thomas. And I figure he's up there in heaven going, can we get over that? (laughs) That was a very short-term thing. I doubt it at some point, okay? The other disciples said to him, You should have been here. The Lord was here. And he said, I won't believe it unless I can put my fingers in the holes in his side and the holes in his hands. I won't believe it. Then we read that Jesus showed up to him and said, go ahead, do that. Put your hand into my side. Put your fingers into the holes in my hands. See that it is me. And he falls down and says, my Lord and my God. According to best tradition, According to Fox's Book of Martyrs, Thomas is the one who went into one of the most difficult places in the world to preach the gospel. He went into India where he was driven through with a Brahmin sword and never recanted. Never said all he had to do to save his own life was say, never mind, we made it up. And you don't see any record in history anywhere where any of the apostles ever said, never mind, stop flaying my skin off me, stop dipping me in boiling oil, stop crucifying me upside down, stop it, we made it up. You don't find that anywhere in history. So these men were convinced. These men not only were convinced of what they wrote about, about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it changed them. John and James fishermen not highly educated men they wanted to call down lightning from heaven to burn up the enemies of Jesus as a consequence Jesus gave them the nickname the sons of thunder he even said to them you don't know what kind of men you are and yet everybody agrees as you read the not only the Gospel of John, but the three short epistles of John, he speaks about love more than any of the other apostles or New Testament writers. How did he go from son of thunder, kill your enemies, let's burn them, let's pull an Elijah on them, all the way over to the apostle of love? Something happened. Not only did he witness these things, but these things changed him. Now, we've been able to witness that. We've been able to see the change in these apostles for 2,000 years. As long as the scripture has existed, as long as people have had access to the New Testament, they've been able to see the testimony of men who change dramatically. Dramatically. Once Jesus rises from the grave and they come to faith, they realize that they can have the boldness to go out and preach Him as the Son of God and that no one can compete with their testimony because they know for a fact it's true. And it changed them. Okay, so, so far in Ephesians 4, Paul has been saying, You're going to change. You're going to be different. If, in fact, you know Christ, if, in fact, you have been taught about Christ, if, indeed, you know Christ and he knows you, it's going to change you. And it's been that way since the very beginning. The original writers, the original authors of the New Testament, that's my point, the original authors, all changed. You think Paul went through a little change? That men's group We've been reading about, in the book of Acts, about the change that Paul went through from killing Christians to giving up his own back, giving up his own sight, giving up his own body in order to bring the love of Jesus to Gentile people, to believers. That's a big difference from killing people who were following the way to being the leading advocate of the grace of God in the way. It's a big change. And so you can see why in Paul's theology, he expects that if you know Christ, if you believe Christ, that it's going to change you. And I think everybody in this room would testify that you've changed. That you're not who you used to be. You're not what you used to be like. And if you are, I'm worried about you. We need to talk because you still haven't comprehended Christianity. If Christianity is simply an intellectual exercise for you because you like the doctrines, you like being plugged into the history of the Reformed Church, but it doesn't affect you emotionally, if it doesn't change you behaviorally, if it doesn't change the kind of person you are in the way that you are kinder and more loving and more patient with people, then you still have not understood Christianity in everything that Christianity is. Because Christianity is meant to change you. Now, in the first part of Ephesians 4... Paul has been making that argument in favor of change. He's been making it in a positive light. He's been saying, here's the good things that are the result of Christianity. Starting at verse 17, which is where we ended last week, starting in verse 17, he's going to take it as a negative argument and talk about what people who don't know Christ are like. And he's going to paint a very dire picture of them. And yet what you're going to see is the unifying factor of all the things that he describes as characteristics of unbelievers are all part of their ego, are all part of their pride, are all part of their selfishness. He even mentions that they do it through impurity with greediness. So all of the characteristics that he's going to bring up all have to do with the most often cited sin in the Bible, which is pride. So let's start reading Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 1 so that you can see the positive argument. And then at verse 17, you'll see Paul begin the negative argument. Chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Ephesians, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's a very positive statement. You believe in Christ. You have faith in Christ. You are saved by Christ. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Therefore, walk like it. Live like it. That positive change, just like the apostles were changed Just like all the New Testament writers were changed, you're going to be changed. Act like it. Here's what that would look like. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I have pointed out now a couple of times that that is the absolute antithesis of prideful ego, of me first, of all I care about is what I get out of it. You'll notice that Paul says just the opposite and says, humble yourselves, walk in humility, be gentle with each other. Don't be arrogant, don't be boastful, don't be prideful, don't be angry at one another. Be gentle with one another, show patience with each other show forbearance, and do all of that in love, sacrificial love. Be diligent then, actively work at preserving the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, in the bond of togetherness, in the bond of not fighting with each other, eliminating the againstness. Instead, being peaceful with one another because there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill All things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man to a grown up man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men by craftiness in deceitful scheming but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself, once again, in love. This I say, therefore. Now you can see why I couldn't start on that verse. Because you can't start anything on therefore. But this I say, now that you know that this is the expectation, now that you know what it is to walk as a Christian, how to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, now that he has stated it in the positive, he's going to say, and don't be like you used to be. Don't be That sinful man, don't be that fleshly person. Don't be everything that God called you from and delivered you from. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord. This is very interesting Pauline language. When Paul is opinionating, because every once in a while he deals, especially with the Corinthian church, he deals with things within the church that he has to say, I say this, this is not the Lord, but this is my opinion. This is a godly opinion. This is an opinion driven by the spirit and understanding the word, but this is still my opinion. Then in other places, he'll say, this is the Lord. I'm delivering to you what I got from the Lord. Well, this is one of those moments where he says, I affirm together with the Lord. In other words, this isn't just something that Paul is saying that he thinks is going to keep peace within the body of the church. This is a directive from Christ himself. This I say, therefore, and I affirm it together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. The word Gentiles there doesn't just mean non-Jews. He's speaking of non-saved people. Gentiles who don't know anything about God, Gentiles who don't have the prophets, who don't have the scriptures, who don't have Moses, the Gentiles who have no way of knowing what God's holiness would look like. And so they're not striving to achieve any level of holiness. These are the people who are separate from God and separate from godliness. Don't be like them. They're going to behave like this. The Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Futility. That means just emptiness, pointlessness. It has no reason. It just simply is. And so they walk through their lives in the futility of what they think. So what they think, not having the mind of God not having the mind of Christ, not having the governor of the Holy Spirit in them, they think that whatever they think is the right think. And Paul says that's futile thinking because it doesn't lead to godliness, because it doesn't lead to an understanding of Christ, because it doesn't lead to behavior that reflects holiness. Instead, it is complete futility have you ever argued with one of those folks <laughs> who just think they're right because they think they're right because they have that opinion? Yeah. And just because you have an opinion, that doesn't mean that what you think is right. Because the Bible says there is such a thing as futile thinking. Thinking things that are just pointless and empty, and boy, those people sure can be insistent and belligerent about what they think, especially when they get online and especially when they're typing to a pastor. Just wanted to mention it. <sighs> this I say, therefore, and I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being Darkened in their understanding. Why is their understanding darkened? Because they have not been enlightened. They don't have God. They don't have the spirit of God. They don't have faith in Christ. Therefore, having not been enlightened, they're lost in the dark. To understand the kind of darkness that is being described here, I'm going to borrow a phrase from David Morris. It's like a blind man in a dark room Chasing a black cat who isn't there. (laughs) That kind of darkness. And so their minds are darkened. Their understanding, their comprehension of everything that actually matters is darkened. Because they haven't been enlightened. And yet they can be very confident. Because they think what they think is the right thing to think. And yet their thinking is futile because their mind is darkened and they have no understanding because they are excluded from the life of God that's what Paul says so now you get some idea of who these Gentiles are that he is speaking of these are Gentiles who are excluded from the life of God They don't have, as I already said, they don't have Moses. They don't have the prophets. They don't have the oracles of God. They don't have the law of God. They don't have anything that would enlighten them to the way of God or the holiness of God. Therefore, they're walking around in their darkness because they are excluded from the life of God. And so Paul is arguing, don't be like that. Not if you know Christ. Not if you have the spirit of Christ. Not if you know the things of God. Don't act like them. Because they act that way because they're dark and futile. And you're not. You're enlightened. Your life has been quickened. You have comprehension of the things of God. You have the very spirit of God residing in you. Therefore, your behavior ought to reflect that because you know what behavior looks like that doesn't have all the benefits you have, and their minds are dark, their understanding is dark, and their thinking is futile. Don't be like that. Being darkened in their understanding, they are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Okay, so let's take a quick look and review how Paul has just described human beings who don't know God. He has said their heart is hardened. You see that all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New, that one of the ways that God has to enlighten you and quicken you is that he has to take out your stony heart and give you a heart of flesh, a heart of compassion, a heart that is capable of loving. He has to do that for you. He has to make that change within you. Otherwise, your natural heart is a hard, stony heart, because you're only interested in you. Not only do they have a hard heart, but they are ignorant. He just says it plainly. Because of the ignorance that is in them. Why are they full of ignorance? Because they are separated from the life of God. Which means that Paul is talking about people who might know a lot of stuff. They might be very intellectual. They may have accumulated PhDs to themselves. But they still walk in ignorance because they don't know the one thing you got to know to leave this planet safely. And so no matter how well they do in this lifetime, if they launch out into eternity, and are separated from the life of God, they're going to be permanently separated from the life of God. That is ignorant. And Paul says, because of that ignorance, because of the hardness of their heart, because of being excluded from the life of God, that is why their understanding is darkness, and that is why the things that they think are nothing but futility don't be like them. And they, says verse 19, and they having become callous. That's a pretty good translation. Tom is a guitarist, for those of you who don't know. For those of you who weren't paying attention to the fact that a moment ago he was sitting right here with a guitar in his hands. Uh, Tom is a guitarist. And if you've ever tried to play a guitar and you're not a guitarist, it hurts your fingers. When you start learning to play guitar, when you start learning to play the violin, it hurts your fingers pushing down on those strings and wires. And so your hands, in order to protect you from that pain, build up calluses. Those calluses protect you from the pain of pressing your fingers against the string. Same idea here. He says that they themselves have become callous, which means they have built up a barrier between themselves and the truth. They've become callous in their thinking, which is why, and I'm sure you've all had this experience, you can walk up to some people and tell them about Christ, read it for them right out of the Bible, and they just don't get it. They just won't understand it. And it's because they've built up this callous. They've built up this barrier between themselves and the truth so that they remain in their ignorance and they can't understand the truth when they hear it. Their minds are darkened. Their understanding is darkened and they are calloused against the truth. They, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality. That means... Whatever it takes to satiate your flesh, whether that's too much food, whether that's too much sex, whether that's too much money that you spend on your own creature comforts, whatever it is, that all comes under the heading of sensuality. It's just satiating your flesh because you think that's what this life is about. So because they are callous against the things of God, they've got nothing left but this lifetime and the flesh they live in. Therefore, they give themselves over to their fleshliness, to their sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity, for the practice of every kind of sinfulness and rebellion against God, because that's all they know. That's all they've got to work with. They're separate from the life of God. So all they've got is their flesh and their dark minds. And notice that Paul says when they give themselves over to every kind of impurity, they do it with greediness. They don't just want some fleshliness. They want all the fleshliness. The more they can satiate their flesh, the more beneficial they think that is to themselves have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says whoever dies with the most toys wins that's the kind of thinking and it's even on bumper stickers it's common thinking in our society get stuff get more stuff get all the stuff you want and then heap it all on your flesh make yourself feel good about you Paul says that kind of greed of impure things It's the sort of sensuality he's talking about, the sort of fleshliness he's describing. And in verse 20, he says, but you, you Christians, you blood-bought, you who belong to Christ, but you did not learn Christ in this way. You didn't learn him through your sensuality. You didn't learn Christ through your fleshliness. You learned Christ by activating your mind and your heart toward the things of God as he changed you, as he took out your stony heart, as he enlightened you, as he puts his spirit into you in his sovereignty. He quickens you. He calls you to himself. So now having that calling on your life, walk in a way that is commensurate with that calling on your life. You didn't learn Christ in the way of the flesh. You didn't learn Christ through sensuality. And you didn't learn Christ in order to satiate your flesh. That's not what Christianity is. Now, it is certainly what Peter had going for himself when he said, I don't know him. Because he didn't want to be the one to suffer. He didn't want to be killed. He didn't want to be tortured the way Christ had been. So he said, I don't know him. That's fleshliness. And yet he stood up on the day of Pentecost, like I said, when it came time for him to be crucified. He said that he didn't deserve the honor of being crucified the way his Lord was. And so he was crucified upside down. That's the opposite of satiating your flesh. That's giving your flesh over to the abusive people, to the darkened people and recognizing that he had something more valuable than his flesh. He had the hope of eternity. He didn't consider this life to be the valuable thing that he was going to cling to, but at one time he did. He changed. Paul expects that kind of change out of Christians as well. After all, if God takes out your stony heart and gives you a heart of flesh so that you can begin comprehending, so that you can begin loving, so that you can begin being patient with each other, so that you can begin looking out for one another, so that you can protect the bonds of peace within the body, well then that is an astounding gift from the God who Paul has already said is the giver. He's the one who gives gifts to men. He's the one that gives grace to men. He's the one that gives leaders within the church to men so that we can all come to the unity of the body. It's God who makes these changes. And so, again, I say, if those sort of changes have not happened to you, if you are still buried in your flesh, if you are still satiating your flesh and you don't care about anybody else because you're so busy being greedy then I would argue you don't have the spirit of God inside you because the spirit of God will change you. You did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and you have been taught in him. That's why everything we teach is ultimately about Christ. It's all leading back to Christ And so you have heard him, you have been taught in him, because the truth is in Jesus. That's where you're going to get the truth. Those that are separated from God don't know the truth, because they don't know Christ. And that's why their foolish minds are darkened. That's why they're busy satiating their flesh, and why their thoughts and their minds are futile. Because they have not learned the most important thing you can learn in this lifetime, which is to learn about Christ. You have not learned Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, okay, so Paul, in saying that, has admitted to the Gentiles that he's writing to that they used to be like that. They used to all be just wanton, darkened sinners. That's where we all start. We all start out in that darkened state of not knowing anything about God or knowing anything about Christ, and we don't care. We were too involved in our sin to understand how sinful our sin was. We were too busy justifying ourselves that we're probably not all that bad and that maybe, possibly, someday, if there is a God, he'll like me because, after all, dig me. Our minds are just completely darkened to the reality of Christ and what he did to save us. And then Christ comes, enlightens us, changes us. And so Paul can say, you were your former self. You had a former manner of life where you chased everything that made you feel good. In reference to your former manner of life, You lay aside that old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you would be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Okay, so there's a contrast in that sentence, which is why I wanted to read the whole sentence, because he's contrasting the renewal of your mind, the enlightenment of your mind with your former self, who you used to be, what you used to be like. And his argument repeatedly is, don't be like you used to be, because you have been bought, because you have been saved, because you have been indwelt, because you have been enlightened, because you have comprehended the promise of eternal life through Jesus Christ because you've begun to understand the word of God therefore that is proof positive that is evidence that God has called you since before the foundation of the world he has written your name down in the Lamb's book of life he has secured you for all of eternity and knowing that he has done all that for you (coughs) act like it and you didn't used to act like it because you didn't used to know it but now that you know it grow up Be the mature man, be the full Christian, walk like it, act like it. Paul in several of his letters does this where he contrasts what you used to be to what you are to be now. And he encourages behavior that makes it clear that you are distinctly different from what you used to be. There is a story. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story. And I would like to think that it's true. Because it's about Augustine of Hippo. So Augustine, in his young life, was full of debauchery. In his young life, he lived a wild life. Wine, women, and song. After he came to Christ, so the story goes, he was walking in the street And one of the, shall we say, ladies of the evening that he used to frequent saw him in the street and called out to him, Augustine, it is I. And he answered, yes, madam, but it is no longer I. That's what I'm talking about. Paul says, you used to be like that, but you're not anymore. You've been bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You belong to a master. You belong to a Lord. You belong to someone who has by his grace done for you all the things you couldn't possibly do for yourself. Therefore, act like it. Walk like it. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6 for just a moment because I want to show you that this is standard Pauline theology. And as I mentioned earlier... The church in Corinth was a messy church. They had a lot of problems. Paul wrote three letters to them, two of which we still have, and he ended the last one by saying, and I'll deal with the rest when I get there. They were a problematic church. 1 Corinthians 6. I'm going to start reading at... Genesis 1-1. So, I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In other words, he's saying the law, the law courts belong to the world. Why would you take a brother in Christ to court shouldn't the church be sufficient to be able to settle these issues so he's arguing another aspect of unity within the church does any of you when he has a case against his neighbor dare to go to law before the unrighteous, the unbelievers and not before the saints or do you not know that the saints will judge the world and if the world is judged by you are you not competent to constitute or judge the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more should we judge the matters of this life? If then you have law courts that are dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account within the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you even one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that in front of unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud your brethren. So he's arguing here for peace within the church. Arguing that why would you go in front of the world to settle issues between the two of you? Shouldn't you be able as the church to determine the differences between you? And why? If you're truly Christian and your brother has something against you and he's ready to sue you, why wouldn't you just accept the defrauding? Why wouldn't you just accept the loss in order to keep the peace within the body? Because what have you got that's so important that you can't give it up if that's what it takes to have peace within the church? Okay, that's the context. You see what he's arguing? Do you not know, says verse nine, do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Paul just described the man whose mind is darkened, whose understanding is darkened, the man who has futile thoughts, the man who doesn't have any participation in godliness in this life. He's a person who is going to satiate his flesh through fornication, through idolatry, through his adultery. Through homosexuality, through thieving, through stealing, through his overt covetousness, through his drunkenness and his reviling, swindling other people and his greed. Those are not the kind of people that you want in the church. And Paul says, such were some of you. You fit in this list. As you were here in the list, you were probably going, yeah, those guys, those are bad guys. Paul says that's exactly what you were like before God got a hold of you and God changed you. So there is an, an old man. I'm an old man. There is, there's the old man, the old version of you, and then there's the new one. Behold, I make all things new. You were born again. You were born from above. You were regenerated. You were originally generated when you were born, but then you're regenerated as God makes all things new within you. But such were you. Remember what you used to be. Remember what you used to be like. But I love this part. Such were some of you, but you were washed. Your sins were washed away, but you were sanctified. That means separated. You were separated from this world for God's exclusive use, and you were justified. And how were you justified? How were you made righteous before God? Was it because you got busy and cleaned up your act? Was it because you did enough good stuff, enough penance? Was it because you showed up enough times on Sunday morning and put enough money in the box? Is that what justifies people? No, right here he says, you were justified in the name, that word means in the authority, of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was enough to justify you. And then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of our God sanctified you, separated you from this world and from yourself so that you could be used for God's exclusive use. And your sins have been washed away, never to be brought up again. Okay, how much of that did you do? None. None. That's why we say it's grace. It's all grace. It's the amazing grace of God the astounding, deep love of God that would do that for people who fit the list of fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. And that describes you after your flesh, after your nature. That's what you're like, and that's what you were like when God got you. When God came to you, when he was gracious to you, when he was kind to you, when he chose you, he knew what you were like. You were like that. But notice also Paul says, but now that you do have the Holy Spirit of God, you're not like that anymore. Some of you were like that. But you're not anymore. That's a past tense version of you. Okay, back to Ephesians 4. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted, in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you put on the new self, the new man, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, Every one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now some of your translations will make a reference there, or capitalize that phrase, to show that Paul is actually reaching back to Zechariah 8:16. He's pulling it out of the scriptures when he says, "Speak truth, each one of you, to your brothers, to your neighbors." That actually is Zechariah 8:16. So Paul, again, is proving this isn't something he's making up. This is something that is already said in the scriptures. And in Zechariah, the commandment was to be truthful, but without the Holy Spirit, nobody could do that. And so now he's saying, now you do have the spirit and the command does exist. So now be better, walk better, walk like it, and be honest with each other. Speak the truth to each other because we are members of one another if you are truly members of one another then when you hurt each other you're hurting yourself because eventually you're going to need them those are your brethren in the Lord and you're going to need them because the day is coming when you're going to stumble the day is coming when you're going to fall down and you're going to need their help and if you're busy lying to them If you're busy hurting them, if you're busy gossiping about them, backbiting them, then when the day comes where you need them, are they going to be in a hurry to help you? No, they're going to think, well, you finally got your just desserts. No, instead, you're to be truthful to each other. Speak truth, each one of you. By the way, if you're speaking truth one to the other, what are you going to be talking about? Christ. Christ. You're going to be talking about the word and the truth, he just said, is in Jesus. So if the truth is in Jesus, Jesus who said, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And then Paul says, now go out there and speak the truth to each other. What are you going to talk about? Instead of talking about yourself, instead of talking about your flesh, instead of talking about how cool and groovy you are, you're going to be talking about Christ. You're going to be leading people to Christ. You're going to be encouraging people in Christ because that's where the truth is. Then he quotes from Psalm 4.4 4 and says, be angry and yet do not sin and do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, it's inevitable because we're human beings, because we're still in these mortal fleshly bodies. Inevitably, we're going to have our differences with each other. But he says, if your difference grows to the point where you're angry at one another, get over it by the time the sun goes down. By the end of that day, you resolve that thing. Because if you hang on to that anger and it becomes spite against that person, it's a sin for you. You're the one who is now sinning. You may start out being angry at somebody because you think they have wronged you. And so you may think, oh, well, then they're sinning against me. But if you continue in your anger against them, you're the one that's sinning. So before the sun goes down, resolve that thing. Go to each other, find that spirit of unity, find that spirit of peace. As he's already said, work hard, be diligent to preserve the bond of peace within that spirit of love. And that's why we looked at 1 Corinthians. Why don't you just accept the defrauding rather than standing up in your own pride, and your own ego and saying, you've wronged me and you, you, you better deal with my anger. Is there anything more arrogant, anything more proud than believing that other people deserve your anger? You deserve my wrath. I ought to be able to yell at you, and you're going to take it because I'm full of me. So humility, love, patience, long-suffering with each other would be able to resolve differences before that day is up. Jesus went so far as to say, If you're bringing your gift to the altar, and when you get there, you remember that your brother has aught against you, go be resolved with your brother first, then come bring your offering. So that you can come bring it with that clear conscience. It's a very important thing that Paul is advocating here. Not only is he repeating something that Jesus himself has dictated, but he's also quoting from the Psalms. So he's reaching back into the Old Testament for it and then bringing it into the church and saying, you can be angry, but if you're angry with each other, don't let it become a sin for you and make sure that you resolve it before the day is over. Make sure that you continue in the bond of peace. Because if it becomes sin for you, if you let it get a hold of you, And you rise up in your own indignation, in your own wrath, if you're absolutely sure that other people deserve to hear from you, Paul says, that's giving place to the devil. That's letting the devil have the opportunity to work through you to cause division within the church. And that tells you something very important about the devil's intention within the church. The unity of the spirit is what we strive for so you can only imagine that that's what the devil wants to break up. No unity within the church. And the best way to do that is to cause differences between people and then sit there on your shoulder telling you, you have every right to be angry. Did you see what they did? Did you see what they said? They sat right in my seat. I didn't mean to point right. Yes, I did. I meant to point right, so. They deserve my wrath. They deserve my anger. Paul is saying, no, they don't get over it. Get over yourself. Accept the loss. Take the defrauding. Work diligently to keep that bond of peace between you two. And don't give place to the devil. Because he'll come in and take that opportunity and do everything he can to break up this church. June 6th. Will be 20 years here at GCA that we've been in this building as a public church. In those 20 years, Jeff, am I telling a lie? Tom, am I telling a lie? You've been around for most of the 20 years. We've seen that, haven't we? We've seen the divisions. We've seen people come in. Yeah, the Basil certainly. know. we've seen people come in and work hard to divide us. I won't name names, but I could. It didn't work. It didn't work. We're still here, and they're gone, and we're still here in unity, reading the word of God and being diligent to keep those bonds of peace, and God has been very, very, very kind to us now for the 20 years that he's kept our hearts bound together, but the devil is looking for an opportunity, and Paul says, don't give him that opportunity. Take it upon yourself, personally and individually, not to be the one through whom the devil works to break up this body. And if everybody in this room does that, then there's no place for the devil. And at this moment, I'm thinking of Elder Ward. I can hear Elder Ward in the back of my head. He described the devil one day as, oh, he's a tricky so-and-so. And he is. All the way back in the book of Genesis, it says that he was more subtle, more wily than all the creatures of the field. And he is. He's tricky. And he will appeal to your ego and appeal to your pride if you give him half a chance. Don't give him that chance. Be diligent to withstand. Be diligent to keep the peace. Let him Here's the change. Here's the difference. You used to be this. Now you're this. Let him who steals, steal no longer. That's about as plain and black and white as it gets. Change of behavior. You used to steal. Don't steal anymore. Rather, let him labor. Let him work. Performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has a need. So go from taking from other people to giving to other people. Okay, that's that change I'm talking about. That's that change from saving your own skin to speaking at Pentecost. Son of thunder, apostle of love. That's the kind of change we're talking about. Used to be a thief. Now I work diligently with my own hands. Those same hands that used to pick pockets. Those same hands that used to take other people's stuff, I'm now going to work with my own hands in order to have adequate so that I can give it to people who have a need. It's a big change. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Then he's going to define what he means by unwholesome. He's not just saying don't use cuss words, though I think that falls into this category. But he's saying more than that. He's saying, make sure that your speech, everybody you talk to, make sure it lifts them up. Make sure that it is an edification to them. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. According to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear you. That's the way you're supposed to conduct yourself. Not talking like the world talks. Oh, we all know how the world talks. And it just keeps talking. And it won't shut up. So don't talk like that. Instead, make sure that every conversation you have, every time you're talking to somebody else, speak what is appropriate for the moment and speak what is going to be edifying, lifting them up, encouraging them, and make sure that you speak with grace in the things that you say. So that would be a difference. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, first big theological important point to hang on to. If you do have the Holy Spirit of God, if he has placed his spirit within you, then he has sealed you for the day of your utter and complete redemption. In other words, if he's given you his Holy Spirit, he doesn't take it back. He is not capricious. He does not look at you and say, what was I thinking? I put my Holy Spirit in shame, and then he turned out like this? That's it. I'm taking the Spirit back. Forget it. No, instead, he is sealing people by his Holy Spirit. Putting that stamp and seal of God on them, saying they are mine, they are utterly redeemed, their sins are paid for in the finished work of my son, and the eternity that I have prepared for them, they are going to get it. They are going to receive it. They are actually going to get everything that I have planned for them. That seal of the Holy Spirit then doesn't leave you, and knowing that that Spirit doesn't leave you, the Spirit goes wherever you go. And the Spirit's there when you do whatever you do. And it's a, let me put an emphasis on the adjective, Holy Spirit. And you drag the Holy Spirit through the mud. And you drag the Holy Spirit to the places you go and the things you do. And he says, when you do that, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave. You've grieved him. Because he's holy. So therefore... As you walk in this lifetime, as you behave yourself, as you deal with other people, as you talk to other people, don't do it in such a way where it would grieve that Holy Spirit by which God has sealed you for eternity. Knowing that you don't belong to yourself, knowing that you've been bought with the very high price of the blood of God that was spilled for you, behave yourself in a way where you do not grieve the spirit of God that is within you. Let all bitterness and wrath, notice that this list now all has to do with you being angry and you being self-centered, you being completely egocentric. It's all about me, and I'm going to hurt other people because I believe other people hurt me. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander Be put away from you. And as if the list wasn't enough, I think he meant to finish the sentence there. Let it all be put away from you. And then he remembered, oh, yeah, and along with all malice. That kind of hatred, that kind of anger where you're out to hurt other people. Don't let that be part of you either. Get rid of your bitterness toward other people. That's part of taking the defrauding so that you're not hanging on to your ill feelings toward other people. And let your wrath go, and let your anger go. Let your clamoring go, and your slander toward other people. There are people who can't wait to tell you something bad about something else, about someone else. There are people who actually feel better about themselves when they point out the faults of other people. And they can't wait to go around slandering other people, gossiping about other people, talking about other people. And Paul says... Don't be like that. Instead, be like this. Here's the contrast in verse 32, and then we're done. Be kind to one another. That English word kind right there is a contraction of the old English word kind. Here in the South, we still use that phrase. Kinfolk? There's a barbecue place right up the block called kinfolks. That word kin means to be family. To be related to one another. And that's where you get the word kind. Treat people like they're family. Not like they're strangers. Treat people like they're part of the same family of Christ. The family of God. The same body. We share the same spirit. Be kind one to another. Be tender hearted. Now you know what that looks like. To be empathetic toward each other to be sympathetic, to understand what people are going through. Be tenderhearted and be forgiving to each other. You hear the thunder? That's God amening his word right now. That's just punctuation. He's just putting a big exclamation mark on what you're reading right now. Be kind to each other and forgive each other. And here's your inspiration to do that. Just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. We love that part. We love the part where we say, yeah, Christ forgave me. Christ, he's my savior. He's my Lord and savior. So I'm saved. Paul says, if that is true of you. If it is true that he forgave you for everything you are, and we've been reading the list this morning. We know how you were when God found you. Think about the amount he had to forgive of you. And if he was that forgiving toward you, you can't find a way to get along with each other. And Paul went so far as to say, even if it is so bad, even if you are so defrauded that you're tempted to sue each other and take each other to court don't do that instead take the loss be defrauded or bring it to the church and let the church settle the issues between you because if you both have the spirit of God in you that spirit that has sealed you for all of eternity and if the people who are judging between you have that same spirit then you're going to come to peace with each other because you have the overriding governor of the Spirit of God working on you. Therefore, knowing all that about what Christ has done for you, therefore forgive each other. Be kind-hearted to each other. Be patient, be long-suffering with each other. Once upon a time, I walked into Main Street Baptist Church, since I mentioned Elder Ward earlier. Nobody knew me the first time I walked in. That was back in the ponytail days. Some of you are glad you didn't know me in those days. I had hair once. I walked in, and people came up and greeted me, hugged me. A couple of them kissed me on the cheek, said how happy they were to see me, just greeted me with open arms and astounding kindness. So afterwards, I was in Elder Ward's office with him, and I mentioned that. I said, wow, I I was greeted here with so much love. I'm just, I'm really impressed. And he said, do you think that was just a lucky accident? He said, no. He said, at least once a month, I preach on love. Because it is our natural tendency as fleshly human beings to forget. And get egocentric again. And get back into ourselves. Get back into what I want. And forget about you. And you deserve my anger. And We just do that by nature. That's what we're like. And so the Bible keeps having to remind us. Love each other. Be kind to each other. Be patient with one another. The biggest compliment that I can give you all as a body. Is that every time somebody comes to visit they don't walk out commenting on the grand theology. They don't walk out saying, wow, you are sure a good teacher. They walk out saying, I love the people here. I like how well you all get along and treat each other and how kind you were to me. And and that's the nicest thing I could possibly hear because Paul uses that as the proof positive of a Christian church. A Christian church that is full of Christian people and I love not using that word lightly I love that that's what we've become so I'm done open your hymnal to hymn 393
1: and I love that last verse it fits so well